this year, two executive orders signed by President Trump, one restricting inhabitants of seven predominantly Muslim countries from entering the United States, and the other imposing penalties on so-called sanctuary cities, sparked a flurry of legal action around the country. The Boston Bar Association welcomed a panel of guests actively involved in this action to provide an inside look at what it's like to take on the administration in both the short and long term. Gladys Vega, executive director of the Chelsea Collaborative, opened the discussion by describing the atmosphere of fear that currently exists in her hometown of Chelsea. The day after Donald Trump was elected, we had over 18 families, parents, in my door at 7.30 in the morning because they were afraid to send their kids to school thinking that uh, Donald Trump will begin deportations. And I tell you that in my 20 years of community organizing in Chelsea, I think that I have never shed so many tears with my community because we are afraid, but we will fight. But we know I am afraid. I am afraid because people are not coming out. They're not getting educated. They're not maintaining their doctor's appointment. Sometimes students are not being sent to school because every time they hear or see a truck from Homeland Security, whether it's ICE truck or Homeland Security, they're afraid. And we have done everything in our power. I mean, imagine, we on March 18, we had 125 volunteers. We had doctors, we had police officers from Chelsea knocking on doors with a newspaper telling our community, if, if ICE agent knocks on your door, you don't open the door unless they have a warrant. I mean, that's the community that we have built and the trust that we built with the Chelsea Police Department and our community and our city manager. And the law is the only thing that can protect us. Matthew Siegel, legal director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, led the local legal challenge to the travel ban, an event which found him at Logan Airport, as well as a Boston courthouse, in the middle of the night. One of the real connections between the travel ban and um, some of the, the um, problems that uh, Gladys is describing in Chelsea, people not uh, uh, people worried about sending their kids to school, people worried about being out in public, people worried about going, going even to the doctor. When I hear that, what I think is, is that, is that consequence, people being afraid, people having their lives affected, is that um, an accidental byproduct of the government's behavior, or is that the point? And I think it's the point. You have government actions that seem to have no real public purpose to them aside from hurting people. And I think that's important because, you know, we're here at the Boston Bar Association. I think a lot of people in the room are lawyers, and there's a question of what we can do. And I think one of the things that we saw in the travel ban is that lawyers can do a lot when faced with that kind of government action. We can try to lift up the people who are hurt. You know, the travel ban got announced on a Friday, the 28th of January. You know, a couple of those lawyers who were trying to help learned that there are these people who are being detained returning from flights at Logan. And these are lawful permanent residents at the time. I'm all of a sudden having to be an immigration attorney, immigrants' rights attorney, but I haven't traditionally done that, but I do know the words lawful and I do know and permanent and resident. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and it seems to me that you can't just suddenly and for no discernible reason except to, to inflict pain ban lawful permanent residents from the country. 
We have lawyers at the airport who are like, you know, we have these people and we have to fi file a complaint. And the court, to its amazing credit, has you know, U.S. marshals there at the courthouse and U.S. district court judge and a federal magistrate judge show up at court. It's a convenient hearing that started shortly before midnight on a Saturday. And, you know, each person who comes in, they're members of the media. There are people from Good and Proctor there. Uh, there's people from Ins Levin. There are people, uh, immigrants' rights attorneys. And they're all kind of converging on the court as the place where this is gonna get handled. And I think that from the standpoint of a lawyer, first of all, it doesn't get more exciting than that. But second of all, it's incredibly meaningful to see everybody step up and do their job. Everyone is there to make sure that if this travel ban is gonna go into effect, it's, it's gonna get a hard look from someone. And then shortly before two o'clock in the morning, the court issues this very well thought out uh, temporary restraining order that halts the travel ban for seven days and wrote it in a way that was very robust and protective. And Boston kind of became, in the view of many people around the world, the go-to place to try to get in back into the United States for at least those seven days. But the challenges didn't end with the travel ban. The Massachusetts cities of Chelsea and Lawrence filed suit against the sanctuary city's executive order. But what exactly is a sanctuary city? And what does the order call for? Inez Friedman-Boyce, a partner at Goodwin Law, explains in detail both the order and the suit her firm has filed on behalf of the cities. We here in Boston filed suit on behalf of uh, Chelsea and Lawrence, which is the only suit that's been filed on the East Coast. And I think a really unique lawsuit in that our clients are small cities with very high foreign-born populations, relatively low income. So, so we think our, our clients present a particularly compelling case for why the sanctuary city orders should be held unconstitutional. The sanctuary city order that we're talking about is part of an order called Enhancing Public Safety in the Interior of the United States. The language of the order is a little bit unclear, in a nutshell, it denies federal funding to quote-unquote sanctuary jurisdictions. It doesn't define sanctuary jurisdictions, but that term is part of a sentence that suggests that those would be jurisdictions that willfully refuse to comply with 8 U.S.C. Section 1373. That's a statute that prohibits state and local law enforcement from restricting the sharing of immigration status information with federal authorities. There's language elsewhere in Section 9 of the executive order that talks about failing to honor requests by ICE to hold on to individuals beyond the period when the state or local jurisdiction feels that they have a need to hold on to them so that ICE can come and collect them for immigration violations. The order empowers the Attorney General and the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security to ensure that jurisdictions that refuse to comply with 8 U.S.C. 1373 aren't eligible to receive federal funding, except there's a small carve-out for uh, law enforcement purposes. And then it also instructs the Secretary of Homeland Security to issue something called a Decline Detainer Outcome Report, um, which is a report that Homeland Security started issuing in uh, mid-March. They issued three weekly reports which list 
jurisdictions that have declined to respect ICE detainers and also lists a number of jurisdictions that have sanctuary policies in place. There's a lot of cities, a lot of places get called sanctuary cities, and it's not a legal term. There's no accepted definition for what is a sanctuary city. There are hundreds of cities and counties and some states that have adopted things that would be called sanctuary policies that could potentially find themselves in the crosshairs of this, this executive order. And we really focused on what's unique about Chelsea and Lawrence in our complaint. Chelsea, as I said, is a, is a self-proclaimed sanctuary city. Demographically, the city is 62% Latino, 53, 44% foreign-born. It has a per capita income of about $21,000, one of the lowest per capita incomes in the state. It receives federal funding in the most recent year in the amount of $13.9 million, most of which has gone to education and non-immigration, non-law enforcement type activities. And that represents nearly 10% of the, the city budget, which is $170 million. Lawrence is a trust act city. It's a little bigger than Chelsea. It has its annual budget is $245 million of which federal funding in the most recent year accounted for about $38 million. Again, most to education and social services, not to law enforcement and immigration type activities. Um, and that represents more than 15% of the city budget. Uh, Lawrence is 74% Latino, 37% foreign born, and 28% of its residents live below the poverty line. So the two cities are potentially facing very significant hardship if federal funding is uh, withdrawn from them. And when you talk to the folks at, in Lawrence and in Chelsea about their sanctuary city policies, it's really remarkable how strongly people, law enforcement, social services, people in education feel about why these policies are important to the fabric of a city and how they improve life in the city. The general view is that these policies promote public confidence in law enforcement and encourage people, whether they're victims or witnesses, to report crimes and that without these policies, uh, crime would go unreported and would increase because people would not be willing to be witnesses for fear of becoming entangled with the federal immigration agencies and potentially being deported. And that is, in fact, what we're seeing. Since this administration came in, we've seen many instances of immigration authorities showing up at courthouses where people are seeking protective orders against domestic abuse or are appearing uh, as witnesses in other crimes and being taken into custody by federal immigration officers, which is exactly what, what was intended to be avoided by, by the adoption of these policies. There's a lot of really excellent social science literature about the impact of sanctuary policies on crime rates and, and education outcomes all sorts of metrics of um, civic life. And in general, the results of that research is that these ordinances have a very positive effect on 
communities, especially communities with large numbers of immigrants like Chelsea and Lawrence. Our case is pending in the federal district court in Massachusetts before Judge O'Toole. We are seeking a declaration that Chelsea and Lawrence are not sanctuary jurisdictions within the meaning of the executive order because even though both cities have adopted sanctuary policies, those policies, we argue, don't violate 8 U.S.C. Section 1373. They don't prohibit or restrict law enforcement from providing immigration status information to federal immigration agencies. They are not blind to criminal acts. They allow local law enforcement to provide individuals who have been convicted or charged with serious crimes, uh, felonies, crimes involving potential terrorist acts. Those people, their information is provided to ICE. They fingerprint detainees. They comply with some sorts of detainer requests, although sometimes requiring warrants, depending on the jurisdiction. So we are seeking a, a declaration from the court that Chelsea and Lawrence aren't sanctuary jurisdictions and therefore are not in danger of having their federal funding stripped from them. And then we also challenge the executive order on a number of constitutional grounds. We argue that it is unconstitutionally coercive under the Tenth Amendment because it gives no notice, let alone unambiguous notice, that accepting federal grants requires cities to actively enforce immigration orders. It threatens all federal funding to the cities, all sorts of social services, education, healthcare, special grants for dealing with domestic violence, all these sorts of things. These, these sanctuary jurisdictions can be rendered ineligible to receive those going forward. And if we are to take Attorney General Sessions at his word, could potentially be clawed back uh, if they've already received those fundings. We challenge it as a violation of the 10th Amendment because it tries to force local governments to fall in line with federal government programs. We also make a separation of powers argument we say that the executive order legislates a penalty for violation of 8 U.S.C. Section 1373 that is not in the statute and was not authorized by Congress and imposes new conditions on federal grants that um, were not uh, in any statute and are not authorized by Congress. And then we have a Fifth Amendment vagueness argument <coughs> that cities can't reasonably determine whether they're sanctuary jurisdictions, whether they're subject to these penalties, and what they will be. So the government had 60 days to respond to our complaint. Uh, they did so on Monday, which was when it was due. They filed a motion to dismiss, uh, which we expected. And they have moved to dismiss our complaint on ripeness and standing grounds. They argue that the cities have not been harmed because the government hasn't done anything yet. They haven't been designated sanctuary jurisdictions. No funds have been withheld for them. They've also moved to dismiss on the merits challenging some but not all of our constitutional arguments. We're working on our response. We feel we have very good arguments in response to all of those and we feel that our case will be allowed to proceed. We intend to address all these arguments and to show that the plaintiffs have suffered and continue to suffer concrete and immediate injuries right now as they're budgeting and making hiring decisions and therefore the claims are right clients have standing to assert them, and that the executive order is unconstitutional. On April 25th, a judge in California temporarily blocked President Trump's plan to withhold funding from so-called sanctuary cities. 
yet the issue is far from over. But as our panelists see it, they are prepared to keep going. I was pulling together a team of associates and partners at Goodwin who were interested in working on the sanctuary city issues. And I would say that there were more people that wanted to do it than we really had need for. If you look at our complaint, it's a very long list of people that signed <laughs> on to it. Um, and we divided up the research and said, you do coercion, and you do commandeering, and you do separation of powers. And, but people were really excited to be useful. You know, people are volunteering in great numbers to help. And I think one of the tricks for, for you know, people who do civil rights work right now is to, make, is to help figure out ways that we can partner successfully in that circumstance. We've worked with a number of law firms to try to, to, to be helpful on immigrants' rights things and, uh, and other issues. Part of that is just making sure that, that you're really hearing from people in the communities about what's happening, and then knowing that, um, what you're going to do if, if there is a problem. And I think part of that is bringing a lot of different kinds of people to bear on the problem. So it's so it's it's community activists, you know, it's law firms, it's individual solo practitioners who might be doing individual immigrants' rights cases, and it's different kinds of lawyers. You might need trial lawyers, you might need appellate lawyers, because you never know when someone is going to have to suddenly be in court and you don't know in advance what the argument's going to have to be. And the government might know less <laughs> than they really ought to know about what, what you're dealing with. So sometimes the advantage will be uh, on uh, the government's, but sometimes the advantage will be to advocates who have the time to think about you know, what are the legal issues and let's make sure we had everything right so that our complaint is exactly the way we want it when we file it. This whole thing that we are experiencing now, that at times I feel like hopeless, it's a way of us sticking together, unifying our voices and fighting together and not fighting for undocumented working families, but we're fighting for dignity of the human race. And this country is made for everyone. And without the immigrant contribution, this country would have not been where it has been. I am afraid for my community, but we're fighting, we're standing together, we're sending a very strong message. And without the legal representation, we're not able to do this work. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Issue Spot. Thank you for listening.